destination. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Red Hot Chili Prepper. I am Suzanne Sherman. Joining me today is Jeff Johnson, my co-host, wonderful friend and producer. This is episode five of the Red Hot Chili Prepper, and you can hear us over at anchor.fm. They are also capturing this on Breaker, Google PC, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. If you go over to Anchor FM, there is an option where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can support the show. Little donations add up. We try to give you a lot of value for donations, however small they may be, uh, but they do add up and they will help as we were talking about um, you know, there is some expense into putting these shows, a lot of time and effort. You can support us over there. You can also follow us at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash red hot chili prepper, C-H-I-L-L-Y prepper.com and follow me there. Suzanne C. Sherman.com is my website where you can read all my published articles as well as blogs. And uh, we ask you again, if you feel inclined, there is a donate button. Uh, you can use PayPal one time or recurring membership. That would really help. Today, we're going to talk about canning meat. Earlier on my other show uh, during the week, the Wasatch Report, I had Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center discuss the present, uh, the looming meat shortage that we're having. And this isn't just a result of the coronavirus. We're not going to get all political on the show, but what we do have to do we would not be diligent if we didn't look to one of the causes of our reasons to prepare, and that is government incompetence. This is not a party or partisan issue. This is an issue with centralized planning. And what we're having right now, this coming shortage of meat and the slaughter, wholesale slaughter and waste of our meat and protein supply on this continental landmass, we can attribute to the failings of centralized planning most notably, and I'm going to get into this article a little bit before we roll into the, our solutions. We're not just here to complain. We're here to give you some solutions. Well, what's the cause of the problem? The government incompetence. They have caused the break in the supply chain. They did it 50 years ago. What are our solutions? How can you preserve meat for the long term? That's going to be the part of the show where we focus on the preparedness. But over a my good friend, michaelmeharry.com, he has an article and it's called Congress broke the meat supply chain 50 years ago. And, you know, we have the, and, and I'm going to be very clear here, what the, the problems that we're struggling with right now are not caused by the virus, but they're caused by the government reaction to it. We all have our own, um, our own beliefs on how this should be handled, but it's irrefutable right now that the house, what is it now? We're looking at over 33 million unemployed, almost a quarter of the United States workforce unemployed. That's not because people are sick because of the virus. This is because of government shutdowns, regulations, making it so people cannot earn a living. So what do we do now? Let's look at what Congress did. The coronavirus induced government shutdown has wreaked havoc on the US food supply chains. Well, why is that? As Mike explains, the stage was set for this problem decades ago. And what they had was the, um, we're seeing Smithfield CEO Kenneth Sullivan is saying that the US is dangerously close to a significant meat shortage. The facility closures are going to have severe, perhaps disastrous repercussions in the supply limit. So the Wholesome Meat Act of 1957 mandates that meat must be slaughtered and processed at a federally inspected slaughterhouse or in a facility inspected in a state 
with meat inspection laws at least as strict as federal requirements. So what we're seeing now without the availability, <clears throat> and again, if you want to hear more about that, you can go to also on Anchor FM, the Wasatch Report, and we discuss this article in great detail. But what this has caused has really been a chokehold in meat processing. And because this meat cannot be processed, it is now being just wasted. You're seeing piles and piles of pigs. Cows are about to be slaughtered. I think 2 million chickens were slaughtered. So, and again, this is, this is food that is just going to waste. As a hunter, I find any loss of life and waste of meat to be absolutely reprehensible. And this is wholesale slaughter and waste of meat that could be feeding families right now, but for government incompetence and intervention. Mm -hmm. So um, what we're looking at is how do we, how do we start now? What do, what do we do from here? And we had talked about an episode, we had an episode, it's, it's not too late to start planning. What have we learned? What have we learned so far? We've learned that toilet paper was unavailable for no reason whatsoever, other than people panicking, people feeding into the media hype. Jeff, what were we saying the other day? This lockdown, if it has benefited anybody the most, it has benefited the media conglomerates. We are stuck home, we're looking for information and we are being fed nothing but fear and getting people to want to shelter in their homes uh, and, and avoid their friends. We're seeing a dehumanization of society, face masks, don't go and visit your relatives. You can't smile at people. Our human interaction, we're being dehumanized. And that's what we're seeing right yeah. now. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I just want to jump back to that article a little bit because there's one thing that was interesting that Mike explained, and this is why we're talking about this canning today, because this is a prepping issue. It's, uh, you know, forget all the government stuff on this. It is a prepping issue. Uh, before that act, there, he, there was over... 10,000 meat processing plants in the United States. After the act, now there's less than 3,000 meat packing plant, plants in the United States. So that act reduced the number of plants that can do it. And now we, and at this point, we have an expanded necessity for supply because there's a lot more of us today than there was in 1967. I don't know how many there were now, but now we're getting 340, 350, who knows, a million people. So now we have a greater need and less supply. So that's why we're discussing this today. So right now, how would you want to prepare for meat shortages? Some people say, well, I don't eat meat anyway. Um, it's not a problem. So that's not the point of this show. It's, you know, some people can get their meat from, I, it, we talk about redundancy. I also have plenty of protein powders and that sort of thing. Uh, green micronutrients for long-term uh, food shortage. So, but if you're, if you're not into uh, storing meat in your freezer, there are other ways to do it. And we're going to get into that today. Uh, food dehydration will be a topic for another, uh, another show as is freeze drying. I don't have a freeze and, dryer. I would love I one. I really want to, I really want to learn how to smoke meat. I mean, properly yes. smoke meat to to store it. I mean, there. I mean, I know a lot of people smoke meat. I mean, I have a friend that smokes it, and he has great pulled pork. I love his food, but it's not for storage. It's it's for taste and it's for for food, right then. So, but I would really like to learn how to smoke. I mean, so that might be a discussion for another day. And but you said freezing first. I mean, and honestly, I have a lot of frozen uh, deer meat right now. But what if the power supply was somehow interrupted? 
I mean, who, who knows? All right, you know, I, anything can happen at this point. I, at this point, I, I won't be surprised by anything because so much has happened. But Nothing what if the power me. goes out? So what you can know? we do now? So now I can't freeze it. So now what, what do we got, Suzanne? Tell me what I got to do because I'm, I'm new here. I mean, I'm just learning. I'm well, at the beginning of this. Um, you know, I'm seeing this in the stores, just like I remember when I lived in California and there was a trucker strike. I was seeing shortages on the shelves. We are precarious. The food supply chain is very precarious. So we're seeing an example now. We're seeing wholesale slaughter and and waste of a, of a very valuable resource here. And by the way, we're importing meats from facilities not inspected from the U.S. inspection sites, which is supposed to be the reason we're shutting these down in the first place. Go ahead. I this is really funny that you said that because um, I'm going to I'm going to admit something here. I buy these preformed uh, sausage patties at Walmart. I know, folks, you, you can yell at me later, but I like them. They taste good, so I get these preformed uh, patties at Walmart, and it's a blue bag. All of a sudden, they don't have this blue bag, but they have this um, new bag that's like uh, black and yellowish, and it's it's the name of it is I'm guaranteeing it's a foreign made product because it's like Chabans or something like that. Now, I guarantee you, they're buying meat from somewhere else, and they don't. And now the new rules have been changed; they don't have to give you the uh, country of origin of that meat any longer. So now it's all of a sudden we have a different sausage there. It's very interesting that you said that because it's I just ran across this just now the other day. Well, you know, the interesting thing, too, um, and again, we're going to delve into a little bit of why we need to be aware of what our government is doing. Thomas Massey had a post about the Prime Act that they're proposing, which would force uh, the country of origin to be put on the meat. And what I had said was, you know, you don't even need to have another law. What the states can do is simply ignore the previous law and put the country of origin should they decide when meat is processed in their plants. It's called nullification and is entirely in conformance with the Constitution. Well, all his constipational conservatives on his page, I ended up turning off the notifications. You know, if you say something is not within the purview of the general government, remember, centralized planning is what's bringing us this bottleneck. Well, meat needs to be inspected. There's this assumption that if the feds aren't doing it, nobody's going to do it and nobody's going to do it right. Well, guess what? The meat processed in, is it Namibia that's being sent over here? That wasn't processed in a plant inspected by U.S. government employees. So we're getting around the very requirement and the whole purpose for this law anyway. Go ahead, Jeff. Oh no, I'm I'm answering okay. I'm answering the folks here. Oh, okay, uh, okay. You can see I'm putting it out there. Yeah, I'm 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 interacting with the folks because you know we had uh, Rick said to can the deer meat, and yeah. then uh, Jeannie said the importing meat is reprehensible. I was agreeing with those, and then I just said to him, "Listen, I'm that's why we're doing the show because I'm brand new, yeah. just now learning how to do meat, and that's why we're doing the show so that you folks and the other people out there that are just now." See, I'm behind the curve on this. I, I'm just starting this. So that's what we were talking about. Where you are, pick up and go forward from there and learn how to do this stuff. Because, you know, I may have to know how to can meat in the future just so I have stored uh, protein for rainy days. So yes, thank you, Rick. We are 
Yeah, we are we're going to get to that. And the thing is, this is the time to learn. And I've been saying since this whole shutdown started, look, take advantage of the downtime, learn new skills. I'm learning how to make different breads from scratch. Uh, I bought an Instapot, learning how to use that and make different recipes, things that I haven't done before. Um, and, and again, the benefit to keeping the meat, yes, can the deer meat. One of the reasons I really got into canning meat was I started hunting when I came out here in Utah. Did I wait till we had a meat shortage to learn? No, I've been doing it since I moved here. One of the reasons I moved here was I would have a steady supply of game should stuff like this happen. But what I wanted to do was learn how to do all the processing myself. I do it myself and I did it when I wasn't under the pressure of having you know, hungry kids and having you know, the, the pressure of being hungry myself. So let's get into this. We've talked about different ways of storing or getting uh, different kinds of meats. We've talked about food buckets before. And I do have a bucket of freeze-dried meat that will last supposedly 25 years. And um, you know that can be added to stocks, even if they're the stock mixes, that sort of thing. But for those of you that want to store greater amounts of meat for the long time, start by um, just, let's, let's look at, you can you can pressure can it you have to pressure can it so we're going to get into quickly how do we want to do this we're going to be talking about there are two kinds of canning techniques now for the fruits and the jams and that sort of thing it's called a hot water bath where you get the stuff up to a boil but for things like uh meats and low acid foods that's what we're going to talk about today you must use a pressure canner i believe it gets the, uh, the steam going up into there, I think 243 degrees, which is necessary to kill all the bacteria in the foods. If you get canning wrong, you can die. This is why it's so important to get it right. So, the, and, and again, I'm doing this show also, not only just for you, Jeff, but Brian Balcom, my meme dealer and good friend out in, vault, in, in the Maryland area, he uh, sent me a message the other day and said, hey, I took your advice and got the All-American canner. And now he's going to start. He's I need some recipes. I said, well, thank you. I'm going to do my next show for you. So let's talk basic, uh, basic equipment. You need a pressure canner. There are two mainstream canners, the uh, Presto canner that has a rubber gasket. And then the All-American, that is my workhorse. You get what you pay for. It is expensive. Jeff, you priced yours out. I yeah. think it was over $300 well, yeah. <clears throat> now. Well, they start, I found, okay, so here's, uh, now this is the new guy that's just learning all this stuff. So I'm starting to do a little research. And so I found that there is a, there is a smaller one because a friend of mine has a smaller one, but uh, the 21 and a half court seems to be that entry level one. And that was like uh, about $250, I want to say, but then it jumped up to 25 court. Now, when I was looking at them, I was like, man, doesn't look any bigger. This looks maybe a little taller. So why would I want to do 21 and a half quarter? It looks like it does almost the same thing. But this one says it does a couple more. So I was like, I was kind of scratching my head because I'm, again, here, I'm the new guy. No, nothing. And that was about $300 for the 25 quart. Then you got to a 30 quart. And I want to say that was around 400. And then there was a bigger one yet. And I don't remember the size of that. And it was about five or six hundred dollars. It was they get very expensive. But as I figured out, as they get taller, you stack more in there, and that's how you get more. So the 21 and a half quart, you can't stack as many. You might be able to stack a row of quarts and then maybe one row of pints. And then as you get to the 25 quart, you can get two rows of course. This is how I look. So say here you go. I learned something by doing a little research, and now I know that I will probably buy. The 25 quart. 
Well, you know, one thing you have to consider, let's, I'm going to back it up a little bit and first do my suggestion for the type of pressure canner. I am the all American girl. Uh, I don't want anything failing in the long term. redundancy. Once I lost my little weight for the pressure canner, uh, I ordered another one. Now I have two and I did find the other one by the way. So, uh, what I like about the All-American is if your long-term situation, you can't get things anymore, you don't have to worry about a gasket that's failed because if a little tiny piece of rubber fails, you're out. You cannot pressure can. So this one is metal to metal contact. You just put some olive oil or whatever kind of thing there so you can get it off and on. And that's that's my go-to canner. I found it's been a workhorse. Now, the benefits for different sizes clearly you can pressure can more at a time. One thing you have to take into consideration, actually two that come to mind immediately, um, the overhead counter space you have. Many people in their kitchens have, I, I don't know why they do this, but rather than having an exhaust that goes out of the house, they just have some BS little filter that the, the cooking steams go through. That's part of your microwave oven. Why they do yeah. that, I don't it know. Just re like, it just recirculates it back into the house. It, exactly. And it's, it's. Yeah. Uh, I, I, ha I did not have that when I lived in California about downsizing and simplifying. This is one of the things I'm dealing with right now. When you have a kid that likes to eat bacon every day, it adds up. Uh, anyway, I digress. So what you have to think about is the overhead space you have. You might have a limitation because of, again, the cabinets and the connection to the microwave oven. Now, if you've got a tall ceiling and a lovely hood hanging over your stove, outstanding, good for you. The, you know, go for the big one. I wish I had that. The other thing to consider in California, I had a big commercial stove, gas stove. Here I have a glass top stove. And a lot of people say, you can't put those heavy canners on a glass stove. I do. I'm not giving up canning for that. And you're, there are just certain considerations you have to take. You have to be very careful putting it on and off. I put the water in when it's already on the cooktop, increase the weight slowly. And I'm also limited to a 21 quart jar. So, or a 21 quart pressure canner. I would not put more weight on that. I wouldn't have the room to do it anyway. I'm maxed out by what I have, but the 21 yeah. quart, I can can seven quarts at a time. You can double up and do, I think, 14 pints at a time. I find if I'm going to go through the effort, I just do the quarts because the quart size typically works with the size of meals. You know, if you want something portable to take with you, the, the pint size jars are better. But honestly, if you want to be portable and mobile, and that's going to bring me to another concern, then you don't want to use canning jars, you know. It's great to take on trips with you if you have something like a motorhome or you're out there. But if you're out there backpacking around, bringing canned goods like that with you, unless you're canning, I think there are some certain kinds of mylar bags and vacuum seals you can get into. Very expensive. But for home use, go ahead. Can you put genies up? This one here. I sort of do everything yeah. with my glass top stove. Anything too large for my stove is too large yep. for me to mess with. That's a great consideration. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Jeannie, I, the, on the All-American site, they do warn against using them on glass tops. So, yeah, so you have to consider that as far as your size as well. I didn't mention that earlier because, again, I've, I'm just learning. I'm the new guy, just learning how to do this. And I want to go back and also say that I have a, other friends that uh, I'm, I'm not going to use the word prepper because they're not prepper. They just want to have uh, their foods. They store their own food because they want to have quality food they want 
the food that they want and not what's processed by a bunch of corporations. So they can a lot. And uh, just about to a person, every one of those people say they have an All-American. So, and for the reason you decided about the gaskets, so yeah. That, yeah, that is not just Suzanne's, not just Suzanne is saying that a multitude of people that are kind of giving me input on making this journey into canning meat has said that the All American is the way to go. Yeah, I agree. We're, we're getting nothing from All American <laughs> folks. This is yeah. nothing to, no, yeah, that, no advertising unless they want to. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, you raised a really good point there too is the freedom of choice when you can your own recipes, look at the sodium content. Many people have to be uh, concerned about that. People with cardio issues, for instance, um, cardiac issues, salt, the sodium level in the, in the canned foods that you purchase. When you can your own foods, you are the master of your own destiny when it comes to what you put in your body. If you have a kid in your house, remember you have to plan for the tastes of your family members. You have a kid that hates peas or hates something, guess what? You can keep it out of there. So you have a lot of freedom to do what you want and why you want, but let's start now. We want to, um, and then here's what, what Jean says also. Do I make, uh, let's see, honestly, I just have my regular pressure cooker. Does that take longer? Yep, can I do multiple batches? Yes, in my small kitchen. I just don't wanna have many large items in my kitchen. And that's a great point too. There are a lot of people that live in uh, apartments or have smaller kitchens that think maybe being a preparer, uh, a prepper isn't possible for them because of limited space. There are ways to do this. Again, you can get a smaller canner. I think everybody can fit the 21 quart. One thing you do have to think of is you do have to be strong or have somebody help you because these are very heavy and cumbersome. Again, ways to work around it. Don't carry it when it's full of water or full of the canning jars, load it, unload it from one place. So and do what you can while you can. So let's talk a little bit about the benefits of canning over just freezing. You mentioned earlier, Jeff, if there's a long-term power outage or a failure that you are that you don't know, let's say a circuit broke where you have your freezer and you've got a freezer in the garage, you're not aware of it. I have a friend that went salmon fishing in Alaska and lost, I think, 100 pounds of salmon in their freezer because the freezer just stopped working. So check your freezers, every, you know, regularly before before that happens. So with canning, you don't have to worry about uh, electricity. You do have to think about storage. And again, freezers are limited, but you can have plenty more storage uh, if you plan it right. Everybody can find storage in their place. It's also rodent proof, which is really nice. I've had MREs and then the freeze dried packets stashed away in my motor home when I lived in California. And over one winter, the mice had a lovely <laughs> supply of food at my expense. So uh, that's another reason I don't store a lot of food in there. And if I had pressure canned it, I could have kept it in there. I can't do it where I live here in the mountains. So where you can store it also is determined by the climate where you, where you live. I couldn't store these in my garage here. I could in California. So I am limited by that. The other positive thing is too, uh, it's a sturdy way to store food and uh, you can reuse you can reuse the jars, which is really nice. So the basic equipment you're going to need are the pressure canners, whichever type you decide. It's totally up to you. And then go on. You can go on to Amazon, go on to pressure canning. They'll show you the different equipment you need from the funnels, the way to pull them out of the um, out of the canning, uh, out of the pressure canner. Yeah, you know, all sorts of equipment there. You're going to need canning jars. 
and rings and lids. What's the difference? The ring is what you twist around the top of the canning jar and the lids are the flat uh, piece of metal that have a seal on them. And those you have to remember, you never ever reuse. So that's just a safety feature there. Always check to make sure of the integrity of the contact area on the jar, that there are no little breaks or small cracks in there as well. Never put, just a, before we get going into how to do this also, never have a rapid change in temperature of your canning jars. So if your jars aren't warmed up, don't put something fresh that you have just uh, heated up in them. You can also cold pack meat. You can take cold meat, put it in canning jars, and then gradually bring this, the, the temperature for the English speakers up to the canning and pressurization. What we're going to include in our notes is uh, the there is a, a YouTube video that taught me how to do this. When I got my pressure canner, Jeff, I didn't know what to do with this thing. It looked like Apollo, looked like one of the Apollo space crafts to me. And I didn't know where to start. But again, that's one of the benefits of YouTube um, that you can learn a lot of stuff from there. And I think we will share that. So yes, Gene loves cold pack. So what's the difference between what uh, cold? So anyway, you um, are talking about uh, screwing the things down. You yeah. didn't know how to do all that stuff. And then you brought up the uh, word cold pack. And I didn't know how that I I didn't wasn't sure. Were you talking about doing the meat raw? Is that how you do? Yes. Is that yeah. Let's, let's talk, okay. Yeah. Let's talk okay. about that. You can. Uh, good morning, David Jones. And uh, let's talk about cold packing. This is I started packing meat. I just used chicken. I had also experienced. I love experimenting with different ways to cook food in case you know. Again, the power goes out. I have a uh, I think it's called a can a can cooker where you could put it when you're camping, it's this aluminum pot and you just put your stuff in there and throw it in the campfire. And I had done chicken and a broth and carrots and stuff with that and I cooked it. And then what was left over, I pressure canned. So my suggestion, for instance, when you're doing something like chicken is cook it raw, is <laughs> cook it raw, pack it raw with some juices, making sure all the air bubbles are out and then slowly bring it up to temperature and that's cold pack canning. And it, you don't overcook it when you do it that way. And I like doing that. Something else I did with venison, again, if you are a big game hunter like I am, you're gonna find yourself with a lot of meat if you don't get skunked. And one thing what I did with a buck deer, I'm not a big fan of venison as much as I am with elk and moose, but I, I grind most of it and one of them I cubed and brined overnight in apple cider in apple cider and some other spices and i actually use the brining as my as my canning liquid so that's one way to do it as well and then uh another thing i'll do is grind my meat and then cook it in advance like i do hamburger so anything that you would add taco salads enchiladas ground beef or you know pasta sauces chili soups stews whatever you cook it ahead of time i season it add some onions and uh, and season just with salt and pepper because you want to be you want to have a lot of options. So let's say, for instance, I put taco seasoning. Guess what? I'm not going to be able to put that into, you know, a pasta sauce. So think about just keeping it as generic as you can. So you have the most options. Something else I like to do is make stock. So, again, if you're a big game hunter or you can make your own stock by buying meat in the supermarket, uh, shanks and knuckle bones and that sort of thing. But when I hunt, I take the connective tissue, some of the um, <clears throat> uh, the bone marrow and the joints, 
and I will make a stock for that. And that is full of collagen, chondroitin, glucosamine, protein, things that you're going to need uh, to make your soups or whatever. I mean, I have been eating that stock like crazy, just making a lot of soups and stews as I've been down here in lockdown. And it's a great way. Just a little aside, when my younger son always gets, when whenever he gets sick, you know, some sort of a stomach issue, it's a great way to slowly rehydrate. And he always seems to ask for that. Uh, so we're going to take a really quick break to, uh, for our friends over at Anchor, and we'll be right back. All right, so for those of you just tuning in, we are talking about canning and preserving meat. There are many ways to do it, but we're talking about using a pressure canner and being somewhat diverse with your options for what you're storing. You know, we were talking about the pros and cons of canning meat versus freezing meat. Um, the benefits, again, these are rodent proof. One thing, uh, just a little tip that I think I omitted when it comes to storage is uh, I have wire shelves and we installed them upside down. There's a little lip that hangs down. Well, we have that pointing upwards. So the, so the canning jars actually won't be falling off the shelves. That's just a little something you think of when you're born and raised in California. Thoughts, Jeff? Uh, I'm going to go back a little bit to about uh, salt packing your uh, venison. You, you, you call it a brine. But if you don't like venison, if you salt pack it before you process it whether you're canning or whatever or even eating it because i'll do that before so i'll put it in a brine i'll i'll soak it for 24 hours and then it, it really does eliminate a vast majority of that game uh taste that people dislike about venison so yeah that's an important step there for those of you that don't like venison i've proven that i can cook this in and people that go, oh, I hate venison. Don't make me eat it. And I'll you know, so how was dinner? Oh, it was good. Yeah, well, you just ate venison. So I think so a lot it of, can be done. I think a lot of people also are are turned off by stuff that doesn't come from the store. You know, I've had um I've had somebody here that saw a buck deer in the back of my side by side, you know, getting cut up. I'm taking pieces off of that, and they were absolutely disgusted. <laughs> never try it again you know but when the process is hidden from you and everything's done at these you know at the slaughterhouses and you just see it displayed in a in a styrofoam you know tray with ceramic wrap wrapped around it in the store it's very sanitized but you know when you get your own especially when you you kill it yourself you really do take strong exception to the wholesale slaughter and waste of these animals that we're seeing on the farms right now Jean has a comment too if you have strong tasting venison the buck is often rank soak it in canned milk or any milk overnight yep and then rinse it well pat it dry and treat it as you would be for lamb you know i've been really lucky out here i have never had any um any bad or gamey tasting deer. And we're also pretty lucky because I, again, I live where I harvest it. So I don't, it's, it's, it's handled in a manner that's not going to affect the taste. Go ahead. I've hunted in Wyoming. When I lived in Colorado, we lived right on the Wyoming border. We went across and what was really nice about Wyoming, I could buy a bonus tag so I could, I could harvest a doe up there for $5. And that's all I spent to go hunt in Wyoming, five bucks. So we'd go up there uh, and we harvest the doe. Now, Wyoming deer, there's a lot of sagebrush up there. So they are very sagey. So there's a real strong, they're very strong meat. So yes, you have to do, as Jeannie said, you have to do something to take, a, to mute that overpowering sage in some, some areas. So you have to know what's going on in your specific area with your game. So like here in the Northeast, there's very little that makes it really gamey. 
the uh, bucks are a bit more gamey. So, you know, just know what you need to do to make sure the meat is more palatable for those that don't like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. A lot of the deer here gets hog fat off of the alfalfa fields that the farmers, you know, have out here on the dry fields. Uh, I had a friend that lives up in, uh, where is it? Wisconsin area, I think it is. And they had this, they caught this massive white tail. They shot this massive white tail and they said the whole thing tasted like pine salt. They didn't even eat the meat. I would make dog food out of it. If the meat was that bad, don't, don't throw it away. And my cousin Gigi is showing up and she was actually a butcher at Costco and she's loving this subject. Speaking of which, uh, Costco and I'm seeing now they're having some uh, limits on some of the meat products that are available. I'm also seeing that in other stores as well. So we're starting to see some rationing of meat and that's the reason we're doing this show. That being said, Let's get into, uh, I've been asked many times, what are some recipes? What can we do with this? I've talked about before, you can can any kind of meat. You can even can bacon. And uh, and you can, my favorites are chicken. I like to can chicken thighs because they have more fat in them than the chicken breasts. They're also easier to uh, get into the jars because they're just you know smaller and, and more flexible. So I can chicken thighs, I cold pack them. I will mix them with some chicken stock, store-bought, or just some water if you want, and then some salt, and that will dry out some of the moisture. Some people don't put any water in them at all, saying that the salt will draw out the moisture of it. Drawing out the moisture means it's not going to be as, as tender. So I always add some sort of liquid. Choose what you want. Even if it's a stock, if you've, if you've cooked like in that uh, canner that I mentioned earlier. But I like to cold pack it. I might put some carrots or something in there. Then if you want to dump it in soup, those are already done. So what I do is I like to make it instant. And I'll share with you some of my mistakes. Jeff, you said you're new to this. When I was new to this, I made tortilla soup when I lived in California. And I cooked the chicken ahead of time. I did everything like I was going to serve it right then and there. If I was going to do it again, I would do everything like I did for the soup, but I would not cook the chicken first. I would put the chicken in and then it would get cooked during the processing time. The chicken that I had in there in the in the soups using the chicken, I made chicken pot pie soup, tortilla soup, other soups like that was very uh, dry and just chewy. I ate it, I didn't throw it away, but I did learn from that. So anytime you're going to can a ready-made soup, just don't cook the chicken ahead of time. So the other thing I like to do, like I said, is season the ground beef. I grind a lot of the meat that I have. So if you're grinding lamb or pork or turkey or, or venison, you know, whatever you're, you're doing, cook it like you would ground burger and then I pressure can that. I do add water, and uh, the reason I add the water, what I can do with it is just put the whole thing, if I'm gonna make super stew, that way that liquid will already have the flavor of the meat infused in it. And the other thing is if I'm going to need to strain it, I can always strain it if I don't want the liquid. So that's something I do. So let's talk about some recipes. Chilies, don't, you can either have the meat ready to go, and you can add it in to make a chili, or you can can the chili yourself ahead of time. What you're going to need to do, I personally like to ch can chilies. I've taken some in either pints for, you know, again, if you're going to go somewhere, you want smaller ones or just a quick meal. If you're on, if you're on your own, Greg, I taught her how to cook venison. Yes, you also taught me how to hunt it. Thank you very much. And to shoot, by the way. So uh, when a Marine teaches you how to shoot, you know how to shoot. So thank you, Greg Matthews. <laughs> um, 
So I like to uh, just be able to have some sort of choice decision making. So I will make, I have a lot of chili that I've made ahead of time and it holds up. It's, uh, it does very well. You can add beans if you want, if you don't want to, uh, if you want to have something again, just quick, just have the other ingredients. I have the stock candy all the time as well. So I make all sorts of chilies, soups, any kind of soups that you want to make can be done. And again, you want to process them the same amount of time that you would any other canned recipe. I, again, prefer, prefer quarts. If you're going to do anything with meat in a quart jar, 90 minutes. And uh, where I live on my altitude, it is 15 pounds of pressure. Again, this is not going to be a comprehensive instructional tutorial on how to do all this because I don't want to miss any any important steps. But yeah. uh, you do have to account for the altitude so, and the pressure. Yeah. So can I ask, because um, I'm, again, so when your chilies, are you cooking the ground meat prior to making your chilies in there? Or are you yeah. putting that in raw like you do the chicken? So if I no. was doing chicken noodle soup, say, mm -hmm. put that in raw. I right? would do that, or, but for the, the base for chicken beef, soup. yeah, for the ground beef for the ready-made chilies, I have not found that to be the issue. I think because there's so much more fat with the ground beef um, or the ground venison, uh, because it's already ground as well. But the the chicken seems to just have a different texture. It just comes across as stringier. But once you put it through the grinder, uh, I, I personally haven't seen that problem. So that's a really good question, and. Um, so any kind of soups that you want to make like that, I have thrown it into roasted red pepper soups, or I love making uh, meals with cabbage, and I add that and cook that and don't can it. So uh, stews, I have stews that are already made. Again, to keep things from getting too mushy in there, I never add noodles ahead of time, but uh, potatoes. So I would not, I would not cook the potatoes fully. Carrots, I add in late in the game and then they get cooked and more tenderized during the process. So chilies, soups, stews, stocks, all of this stuff. If you're canning in pint-sized jars, 75 minutes of, of uh, canning time. Stock, I just learned late in the game, there are a lot of uh, canning groups on, on uh, Facebook, for instance. I did not realize they took less time than canning the meat itself. So I was told I could safely do that at 20 minutes and I was canning that for 90 minutes. That's a waste of resources. You know, I'm on electricity here. I don't have the benefit of a gas range like I did in California. So saving resources like that is very good. Another reason I, I encourage people to do as much canning as they can now, and this, this really falls into why I also don't store a lot of dried rice and beans is it takes a lot of resources to process and cook those when they are in their dried condition. So I even had a big bag of beans somebody gave me and I just canned the beans so I don't have to use the resources at a later time when I might not wanna go through my wood, when I might not wanna burn my generator uh, for a long time to run something that is as in, uh, resource intensive uh, with regards to usage as my range. So there are other ways to pressure canned food or to pressure food. Don't get the countertop pressure cookers confused with the pressure canners. I was thinking I got an Instapot, for instance. Maybe I can pressure can smaller things. Nope, that's five pounds of pressure. That's not enough. It's good for cooking, but is not sufficient for long-term storage. There are a lot, and that's an important distinction. So something else I want to throw out there. So again, go ahead. Okay. So I have another question. 
uh, and I am kind of backing up here because we're talking recipes now, but it's something that I should have asked early on in the show. So when I'm buying cans or jars, uh, there's wide mouth and then there's regular mouth. Uh, and I did notice in my research with the pressure canner that it says regular mouth uh, jars in there. Can you use the wide mouth jars in the canner or do you just have to put less of them in the pressure canner when you're if you're using wide mouth ones? Uh, the diameter of the actual canning jar is the same. The opening is smaller. So uh, I, I say pick one and go with it. And um, me being me, I have the big mouth jars. <laughs> Just like you, know, you know, you are a lawyer. So. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> So I just find consistency. Um, so let's see, tutorial videos with Suzanne Sherman. Okay, I might make some of those happen. I actually have something in the works. Uh, I'm in negotiations. I can't really say who it's with, but I'm in negotiations with an outfit that uh, is doing a book on this sort of stuff. So we might, well, we'll we have some stuff in the works. I bet I'll let you know when that comes out. But yeah, I guess we'll do, we'll start doing some videos. Um, I think that would be helpful. I do have a YouTube channel. I haven't put anything up on it yet. So um, gosh, if people are asking, we will do that. So I think what we've covered so far, why is canning a good idea? What are the, pro what are the pros? What are the cons? Uh, I, I think the benefits of doing it are, um, and then Jean says, here's her advice too. Go with the wide mouth, just my experience. I, I just find it's easier to find those lids uh, for the wide mouth jars. And then you don't have to shop and you don't have to have, um, again, a back, a backlog of, of jars if you can't get the right size lids for them. And I'm just comfortable with the wide mouth. So I use those. They're also easier to load and store. And again, if you have a funnel, that really helps. And that will, by the way, there's a funnel that will work both for the wide and the small mouths. And I found that's easier. So um, my favorite recipes have to do with the, when I take the grind meat, uh, the ground meat, and I use them to make enchiladas. So imagine enchiladas made with elk meat and stuff like that. Very, very diverse. You can make salads. When I went to go stay with my good friend Robin down in Mesa, we had elk tacos. It was a lot of fun to have those. So just so much fun. And gosh darn it, Jeff, isn't this more fun than talking about that damn coronavirus? <laughs> I know. Yes, this is much, much more relaxing. Oh, I know. Oh, and besides, um, you got a you got a you got a deer looking over your right shoulder. I do. That's Buckley, my co-host. <laughs> I've muted his mic. He's not very talkative. <laughs> Actually, that was my 2017 okay. buck. And okay. I brined, I brined him. So yeah, I've got him in my pantry. I've given some of that brine away. And I gave some of that to a friend of mine that came out and actually did a photo shoot here. He's a, a photographer from Nat Geo. And there are a couple magazines. They did a, a story on people who are prepared. And when that article comes out, they interviewed me and we talked about preparedness. We will share that with you. Yeah, can the Rona, can we can it all already? So I guess what we'll do, let's wrap up this podcast so we can just talk a little bit. So for those of you uh, that have joined us today, I'm Suzanne Sherman. This is the Red Hot Chili Prepper. Please remember to support us on Anchor FM. We're also available on Breaker, Google PC, Overcast, Rocket, uh, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify. If you listen on those apps, please make sure to rate the show 
and the app, and then we will get more listeners. We cannot grow on our own without listener support. Tell your friends, this show here, The Red Hot Chili Prepper, is a show that's about you know, positive preparedness, how we can thrive, how we can be happy, and how we can uh, just make it through the tough times. So thank you for listening. God bless you.